Now, I love In-N-Out burgers. Anybody else love In-N-Out burgers? Now, when I say that, I'm not just talking about delicious meat and cheese, quality you can taste, fresh ingredients. Anybody hungry yet? That's not just what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the whole idea, the whole, the whole concept. See, I grew up here in Orange County. I'm actually a child of the Jesus movement. My dad, who was here uh, last week, he told the story about in the 1970s. He was there at USC, sitting next to uh, Tommy Trojan there, and some complete stranger walked up to him out of nowhere and told him that Jesus loves him and shared the gospel with him. My dad, he believed that in that conversation, and he caught fire for the Lord, and he walked around that campus, and he was reading his Bible, and, and my mom noticed, who's this guy carrying his Bible around, always reading it? There was this one spot he would read it in between classes, and she would, like, spy on him reading the Bible, <laughs> and that was really important because them falling in love is how I'm here today, right? Um, and so we grew up in Orange County. And I used to love going to In-N-Out Burger. And what really made me love going to In-N-Out Burger was when I was a freshman in high school. And we moved to uh, Texas. We moved to San Antonio, Texas. My dad became a pastor out there. And so In-N-Out became like this oasis, see? Became like this dream in the promised land. And here I was in the wilderness. And someday, and they have this place called Whataburger. You ever heard of this place out there? And I mean, I'm totally biased, so there's no way I had like a balanced perspective. But that burger was nowhere as close to as good as In-N-Out, at least in my mind. And I thought people who thought Whataburger was better were just crazy Texans, right? And uh, I I can remember when we would come back out to California, it would be like, how many miles till the first In-N-Out burger? And we'd get there even before it was open, and we'd wait in the parking lot. We'd look through the window, right? I mean, this is a true story. This is how sad it was, right? Um, But see, one of the things that I really remember about In-N-Out is it not just eating the food. It made me feel like there were good times that had happened back in the day. Like like life could be a happy place. Like In-N-Out was cool. And then I won't forget the first day I realized that they put Bible verses on their stuff. I was like, what? You can be cool and you can be a Christian. Whoa. And I remember they didn't just put Bible verses. They threw like minor prophet verses down on their stuff. I was like looking at the double-double, Nahum 1-7. I was like, I don't even know what that verse says. I had to look it up. Nahum 1-7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. I don't know if you've been doing your devotions from Nahum lately. But it's, a, it's just fire and vengeance and judgment, and here comes the wrath of God, and there's this one verse in the middle of all this fiery judgment. There's this hellfire and brimstone going on, and then there's, no, the Lord is good, and he's a refuge. That's what we're going to see here today in Daniel chapter 3. If you'll open your Bible and turn with me, we're going to see the goodness of God going into the fire to save his people. This is one of the most inspiring stories we have in the scripture of Daniel chapter 3, page 739. If you got one of our uh, Bibles, and I just want to read through this chapter and and just let us all get a sense of the power of what God is doing here through these three young men. Now, these three guys are famously known as Shadrach, Meshach, and what? Abednego. And that's how it's going to refer to them 
uh, here because that, that's their Babylonian names. And this part of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, which is a language there that would be understood in Babylon. And so they would have known these guys because they became high-ranking guys in the government of Babylon. They knew them by those names. I'm going to refer to them as we learn their names were in Daniel chapter 1. When they were young men and they got exiled to Babylon, we see back there in Daniel 1, 6, and 7 that their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those were their Hebrew names. Their names given by their dad and mom, and they meant something about their worship of God. And now we see that their worship of God here in Daniel chapter 3, it's going to be put to the test by King Nebuchadnezzar. And what we learned about him in chapter 2, if you were here, we, re we learned that King Nebuchadnezzar, he had a bad dream. He had a nightmare. And he had this dream of this image, and this image was made out of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. And this image was really a prophecy of the nations of the world and how he was the head of gold. And then there would be these other nations. And then eventually there would come an ever everlasting kingdom. And it appears that this dream really goes to the head of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he gets this idea to make his own image, an image of gold. And that's where we pick up the story here in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. That's like 90 feet tall by nine feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So all the government officials... And it gives us this extensive list. You could imagine making a list of all our government officials, right? It's just, and there's a little bit of perhaps irony or sarcasm here in the way that Daniel 3 is written. It's like, look, everybody, all the quote-unquote important people came out for the dedication of this image that King Nebuchadnezzar had built. And the way it repeats it here in verse 3, it's almost like it's, it's somewhat saying this satirically. Like, look at how these important people just are doing what they're told. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces, they gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, you'll notice that phrase, set up. It's already been used here in verse 1, 2, 3. It was just used uh, there. All, all, he has set this up. This is something that King Nebuchadnezzar has done, is made this 90-foot-tall image of gold. He's gathered everybody that he has authority over, and they're all coming now to the dedication of this image. Now, if you do a lot of reading about this story, some people are going to speculate that this is actually an image of King Nebuchadnezzar himself, that this is a massive statue he has made of his own glory. Well, it doesn't exactly say that in the text. It says that people who are going to worship this image are worshiping not just King Neb himself, but the gods, the whole gods of Babylon, the whole system of government that he clearly is the head of. That's like we are the reigning world power. That's what he's getting to. He seems to have completely forgotten the lesson that he learned in Daniel 2, that there was a God who was more powerful than he was, and he's ready to put himself back up now in the ultimate place of power. 
And verse 4 says, the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Uh, all kinds of different people, all kinds of nations represented, different languages being spoken. That when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And I think part of the reason it's giving us these long descriptions of all the different people that are there and all the different music that's there is it's trying to help you see. Can you see the pomp and circumstance? Can you see how ridiculous of a scene this is? How high and mighty King Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is? Verse 6, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I mean, what he has done here is he has made himself God and he has set up his own universe. And if you don't bow down and worship him the way that he tells you, he's got his own hell that he'll throw you into. That's what he's doing. He's putting himself in this alternative reality that he's creating where he is God. He's set up something in his image and now everybody has to bow down and worship him or you go to a place of fire. And it so happened in verse 8 that at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever, which is always how kings were greeted at this time. A little flattery there. We know they're not going to live forever, but we'll say it. O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, every kind of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, bad news, king. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, these guys, they're, they're doing this maliciously, it says. There's a heart of envy going on here because these Chaldeans, uh, they, they were the wise men of Babylon. They wanted to be the top advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar, but he put Daniel, and Daniel put his friends in the top spots. And so now these Chaldeans were humbled down below the position of Daniel and his three friends. And so it's out of their envy that they're accusing these guys. It's totally out of a malicious desire to take them down and build themselves up. Their motives are evil. And Nebuchadnezzar, they set him up perfectly, and he goes into a rage. Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, it's like, here, I'm going to give you one last chance here. Make sure this is your final answer, guys. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. We'll let this be behind us. But if you do not worship 
You shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God? Famous last words here from King Neb. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, uh, knock, knock, King Neb. You should have known that it's the God who, uh, who did it last chapter, and he's going to do it again this chapter, right? But he's not quite on that page yet. He, he didn't grow up reading these stories in Sunday school here. Um, so he, 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 a little bit of, he, he meant that question to be rhetorical, but it's a little bit of foreshadowing here. Uh, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, this is what we want to zero in on, verses 16 to 18. This is really our chance to get a glimpse into what's going on in Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's heart. So one of the questions that might come up as we read through this chapter is, where is Daniel? Is Daniel bowing down to the golden image? Uh, no, I mean, it doesn't really say anything about Daniel in this chapter. Uh, there's nothing that would lead us to believe that Daniel compromised and bowed down. It's quite possible that Daniel's just not even here at this moment. He could be out there doing something for the king. He could be standing up there right next to the king. We don't know. It doesn't tell us what's going on with Daniel. But what it does tell us, what we're going to hear now out of their own mouths, is these guys weren't just Daniel's buddies. They weren't just Daniel's crew. These guys, each and every one of them, they had their own worship of God in their heart. They were committed to putting God first and worshiping him only and learn from their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, Notice there's no flattery here. There's no, O king, live forever. It's just, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And that's not necessarily cutting down King Neb or being disrespectful. They're just saying, hey, we, we're not accountable to you, basically, about who we worship. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able. Key phrase, our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Two things that we get from them. One, God is able to deliver us. Two, even if he doesn't, we're going to die worshiping God rather than give our hearts to idols. That's what they say. And they say it to the king, the most powerful man on planet earth, who's already said that he's got a fiery furnace and he's ready to throw them in immediately. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. I mean, imagine somebody just having the biggest adult temper tantrum you've ever seen in your life. That's what's going on here. And the expression of his face was changed. He liked these guys, but no more. Against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, one of the things that happens when we can use words like fury or rage to describe you is you don't think very clearly, right? If you really wanted to make the punishment of these guys intense, you would actually take the heat of the furnace down so they would cook a little longer in the furnace. So he's just so angry, he's heating the thing up, and not thinking that that would lead actually to a perhaps quicker death for these guys. And because he's not thinking it through, and it's seven times more than it was usually heated, he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments. They were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. 
And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. The idea here is perhaps the fiery furnace is down below. Okay, so I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about somebody being cast into the lake of fire or someone being judged into the pit of hell, but that's pretty much the picture. We're throwing these guys down into fire, and the fire at this point is so hot that the big, strong, mighty men who come and throw them down get burned up and die right in front of the king. And King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Now that is amazing to me. Anybody ever been to a bonfire before? I mean, I don't even get, I don't even get close to the fire, right? I mean, my hair is not singed. My clothes are okay. But I smell like smoke when I come home. I mean, this is just an astounding An amazing miracle. Everybody gathered around to worship because they were forced to. This huge image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had made that he had set up, and now everybody's gathering around and they're witnessing what a real God looks like and how he delivers his people. And Nebuchadnezzar in verse 28, I mean, here he is again now being forced to acknowledge the true God of heaven. And he says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. See, he acknowledges the faith of these three guys. And they set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. It's amazing how crazy King Nebuchadnezzar can be and then these moments of absolute clarity that he can have right here. I mean, he gets it. These guys really believe in their God. And they were ready to die rather than worship something else. And their God delivered them. Their God had their back. Their God went into the fire and saved his people. Even King Nebuchadnezzar can see it. And he says in verse 29, Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything, against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be torn limb from limb. Their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Who is that fourth man that went into the fire? 
Well, King Nebuchadnezzar says he's like a son of the gods. He refers to him as an angel, but I don't know that we should get our theology from King Nebuchadnezzar. Can I get an amen from anybody on that one? I'm not sure he fully is getting it. There are many people who would believe that throughout the Old Testament, what we have are pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ, where the Lord appears to some of our heroes of the faith, and he wrestles with them. He encourages them. You can read about one of these examples in Joshua 5, where he sees the Lord and he bows down to worship. Many scholars would tell you that this one like the Son of God, this angel, this fourth man that appeared with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that unbound them, that protected them in the fire is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And he came. Because he is able to deliver, he is able to save. And this is actually something that was prophesied. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Everybody turn with me back in the Old Testament to Isaiah 43, just a few pages over to the left. We'll come back to to Daniel 3. But turn with me to Isaiah 43 and look at the prophecy that God makes here. And it might sound like figurative, symbolic language, But not when you read our story and you realize this is a literal thing that God is saying. Isaiah 43, page 603, if you got one of our books, Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord. Okay, So these are the Isaiah 40 chapters where God's speaking in the first person. God's revealing who he is. Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. He's talking to his people. Let's remember where you came from. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. When you, when you read that, when you just take it out itself, you think, well, that must be figurative because who's walking through fire, right? Who's going through flames? I mean, maybe I can understand that the people of Israel, they did pass through the waters. God parted the Red Sea. God parted the Jordan River. This was a miracle that God did multiple times to lead his people across the waters on dry land so they would be safe from their enemies who were chasing them. And God gave them great victory by bringing them through the water. But who's walking through the fire? Well, it turned out that there were three Jewish men who believed that worshiping God was the number one priority with their life, and they were willing to die on that hill. And they walked through the fire, and guess what? The Lord God was with them. There was a fourth man in the fire, and that was our Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I, we need to believe what Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah believed. We need to believe that God is able to save. Let's get that down for point number one. You've got to believe God is able to to save. We've got to have this same faith inspired by Daniel 3, inspired by this prophecy here in Isaiah 43 that Isaiah wrote a hundred years before this happened. We have to believe that God is able to save. That's what these young men really had faith in. And the ability of God One of the things you need to make sure you don't do in your life is limit 
God. Our God is in the heavens, and God does whatever he pleases. God is not bound by space. He is not bound by time. He is not bound by getting tired or weakness. Our God does whatever he wants. Our God is able. Can I get an amen from anybody on this? we got to believe this. See, some of us, we've brought God down, and we think that God is altogether like us, and we think he has limitations like we have limitations. We think he has weaknesses like we have weaknesses. No, 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 that's not what the Bible ever teaches us. The Bible says that our God is able. And these guys, they really believed it. I mean, I don't know how they, how they, what they thought God might possibly do. I mean, here was the most powerful man in the world saying, if you don't bow down, you're going to be tossed in this fiery furnace right over here. And he actually went through with it to do it. And, and what were these guys thinking when they said, our God is able to deliver you? What did they think was going to happen? See, this was something in their heart. They really believed. Turn with me to Zephaniah, another Old Testament passage. It's over to the right here, towards the end of the Old Testament. Zephaniah chapter 3 is a verse that I would hope that all of us would think about God. There's a way that you and I need to think about, about God, and Zephaniah 3.17 gets us a glimpse into the ability of God, specifically his ability to save. Uh, maybe you've heard this song, this, this verse put into a song and sung before. Maybe you've heard this verse and memorized it before. But here's a verse that I would encourage you to memorize, to put on your mind so that you would have a high view of God, so that you would regularly be thinking about what God is able to do. It says in Zephaniah 3.17, talking about God gathering all of his exiled people back together. All of his people that have been taken all over the earth, and he's bringing them all back together for this feast. He's bringing them all back together in his presence. And it says here, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Not just is he able to save. He's here among us, and he's mighty to save. The scripture is clear that God has a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and his arm is not too short. He can reach down, and he can save anyone. He can reach down to the very fires of judgment and hell, and he can snatch souls out of the fire. That's who God is. He can save anyone he wants to, anytime he wants to. He has the power to do it. Our God is able what it says in fact here's really the heart of God here's really what God wants it says the Lord your God is in your midst he's a mighty one who will save and he will rejoice over you with gladness he will quiet you by his love he will exult over you with loud singing what an amazing picture what a radical concept. Usually we think of ourselves gathering together to sing worship to God. How about God, the Savior, gathering us together to sing over us? What an amazing experience that will be for all of us who are saved to see the joy that God has in his people, to see the love, to be comforted, quieted, to have our soul really be at rest when we know that our Father loves us, to hear him sing over us. 
You know, one of the things that we know is true in the scripture is that when one sinner repents, when one soul is saved, when they turn from their wicked ways and they believe in Jesus Christ and they receive that free gift of eternal life, when one sinner repents, what do the angels do? What does it say? They rejoice in heaven. You ever wonder why are angels rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents? The way I understand heaven is everybody in heaven is focused on God and they're all bowing down and they're all worshiping and they're saying, holy, holy, holy. So if all the angels are rejoicing, who are they taking their cue from? Who's the one who's really delighted to save? Who's the one who's mighty and able to do it? See, God is saving. He's singing. He's rejoicing and all the angels join in with him. Because we have a God who is able. And every time you look at somebody and you think they're past the point of no return, you're not doubting that person. You are doubting your God. Every time you pray for somebody and you ask that God would save them, but in your heart you don't really believe that God will do it, you are not doubting if that person will repent. You are doubting that God has the power to grant them repentance. If we can get honest here tonight, if we can be open with ourselves, a lot of times we don't think that God is able. We think he could possibly do it, that maybe he would do it. These guys, there was no maybe in their mind. They believe that God is able. You can write down a lot of verses that say God is able. You could write down Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. We looked at Ephesians last year. We looked at this passage. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He can't just do what we're praying for. He can do more according to the power at work within us. To him, to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 says that God is able to make all grace abound to you. How much grace do you have coming to you? All of it. An overflowing amount of it. A generous inheritance of grace will be given to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God has an abundance of grace to give to you so you can abound in every good work because God is able. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save to the othermost those who draw near to God through him. This is referring to Jesus Christ, our high priest, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There is never a moment where Jesus Christ does not have the back of those who believe in him. He will go down into the fire and unbind you and walk with you and save you. And you won't even smell like smoke. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is able to save to the uttermost. Is that what you believe? Is that the kind of faith that you pray with? Is that the kind of boldness that you share the gospel with? See, these guys, they really had faith. They had faith that a pagan king who, who was caught up in all of these false ideas, who set up a system of worship that could have been about himself, he could see the faith that these guys had. We have a hard time seeing that kind of faith at church. In Jude verse 24, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God is able to keep you from sinning. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? 
wants to bring you spotless, pure, blameless into his presence where you could experience his fullness of glory, where your joy would overflow in his presence forevermore. This is what God is able to do. And the question comes to you is, do you believe that God is able? I meet a lot of people who believe that God is able at church on Saturday night. They believe that God is able when we're singing worship songs. When we gather together for fellowship group, God is able. But when temptation comes and knocking on their door, when the world tells them to do something and they think that, well, if I, if I do what I'm supposed to do, the world, the people around me, they really won't like it. They might mock me. They might not appreciate it. I could lose business. I could lose influence. I could lose friends. All of a sudden, the ability of God starts to get really small. We have to believe that God is able. And specifically, let me tell you what God is able to do because we have a God who reigns in heaven and, and he's not, he has set up the world that we live in, okay? We are made in God's image. We don't get to make God in our image. And God has decreed that every single one of us should give him glory. Every single person here has been commanded by God to worship him to repent of your sin, to turn to him. He is near to every one of us. We need to reach out. We need to draw near to God. We need to give our lives to him and worship him. And he has set it up that he would be the center of all things. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's setting up this false alternative reality where everybody's going to worship this other thing. No, everybody is called and commanded to worship God. And we don't worship God. And here's what's good news for each and every one of us. God doesn't cast us immediately into a fiery furnace when we sin against him. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? I'm so thankful that's not what God does. You know what, what our God does, the, the God of the Bible does, is he loves this world that doesn't worship him, that doesn't give him the honor that he deserves. He loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to die in our place, to pay for our sin. I mean, can you imagine King Nebuchadnezzar saying, hey, you three guys should go in there, but instead of you three guys, I'm going to throw my son into the fire in your place? No. King Nebuchadnezzar's not doing anything like that. But God sent Jesus on a seek and save mission for your soul. And here's what Jesus actually did experience. He experienced the wrath of God for your sin, the judgment that you deserved. You have sinned before a holy God. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, it is true. It is fact that God is holy in heaven, and we have fallen short of his glory here on earth. We have fallen short of his ways. And he sent his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty of your sin, and Jesus shed his righteous blood to buy your soul. And the Father poured out his wrath. The Father judged his own son, in your spot, Jesus went through hell so you wouldn't have to. That's what happened. I mean, we literally have a Savior who will go into the fire for us, and he is able to save us to the uttermost. Jesus Christ, he died, and he was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. 
And he now offers, he is able to give anyone who believes in him now eternal life, a new quality of life where you know God in heaven and you have victory over your sin here on earth. You can now actually live a new experience with a new heart, with the spirit of God in you. Your whole life can be redefined by this good news that Jesus died for you and rose again. That can completely change who you are. Our God is able to save you and you need him to save you from the consequences of your sin well these guys they believed that god was able but this is what's fascinating about the story they didn't know if god would they believed he was able but would he deliver them go back to daniel chapter 3 look at it with me here and look at the second part of what they say the verse 17 is where they say very clearly our god whom we serve is able to deliver us we believe we have faith we know what god can do we're not afraid of you king nebuchadnezzar we have a fear of god that's what they're saying there he will deliver us out of your hand one way or the other we believe it but Verse 18, look at this. But if not, even if our God does not deliver us out of this fiery furnace, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We believe in a God who's able to save, but if he doesn't save us, if you throw us into that fiery furnace, if we burn and die, we would rather die than worship your idols. That's what they say. I mean, that's powerful. That's powerful. If I was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah at this moment, I'd probably be asking myself, is it really God's will for me to get burned up here in this fiery furnace? Could this really be God's perfect and good and acceptable will for my life? I'd be thinking, maybe God wants me to just bow down right now so I can really have a long-term influence for his glory later on. Maybe if I just go with the flow right now, God will build a bridge with the Chaldeans around me, and we'll be able to really kind of influence people, and we'll be able to really get in there. If I just kind of become like the people around me, then I can engage more with the culture, and that'll lead long-term to more impact. See how they could have easily gone down that slippery slope. Surely God didn't deliver us out of almost dying in chapter 1 to almost dying in chapter 2 to have us die terribly even the worst way in chapter 3. Surely that's not God's will for our life. He's got us up in these high positions because he wants to use us to glorify him because we're vessels for the Lord. So surely that's God's will for us. Here's what they believed was God's will, what he says in this book. And what God says in this book is very clear. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not build any image. You shall not bow down to any idol. Here's what God says. I am a jealous God, and if you worship anybody else, I'm going to be upset with you. That's what God says. See, they couldn't worship the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up because they had already set up a worship of God in their heart. And they were willing to die worshiping God than to compromise with the idolatry and sin around them. They stuck to God's will. They knew what God's will was for their life. God's will was for them to worship him first and him alone. That was God's will. And they were ready to die doing the will of God. See, I wonder how much you and I are focused on God's circumstantial will. And we're wondering what God wants to do in our lives when really God's revealed will is screaming at us right here, telling us exactly what he wants us to do. 
Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. And let's go to the Ten Commandments. Let's look here at number one as we continue to study here the Old Testament. This is really the whole foundation of the Old Testament. We know that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, but even before Moses wrote the five scrolls, God wrote two tablets of stone. This is really the first revelation from God to man here in the Ten Commandments. This is really God introducing himself to Moses, to the people, in the first written form of revelation. And here's what God says in Exodus 20, page 61, if you got one of our books here. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, Here it is. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You think that might have been going through these guys' head when they saw this 90-foot monstrosity image that King Neb set up? You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Whoa, they're taking that to new heights here in Daniel 3. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the idea of being jealous. A lot of times we can use that word in a negative way. But if a a husband was jealous for the affection of his wife because she was his wife, we would understand that that's a right thing for a husband and wife to love one another. If God is jealous for our glory, we need to understand that that's a right thing because God deserves our glory. God is the only one who is worthy of our worship. And so if we're out here giving our hearts to somebody else, if we're down here bowing down to idols, if we're putting something else in our heart in the place that only God should be, then he is right to be jealous because he wants his people to worship him. He wants everyone that he's made to worship him. And he says, you can't can't worship anything else. And he knew what people were going to do. They were going to make these images and all these likenesses. And they were going to bow down to them. And they were going to think that there was... The people have, from the beginning have been wanting to make God in our image. And God made us in his image to worship him. And if you're worshiping something else besides God, I'll tell you right now, he is jealous. And he wants your soul to put him in the top number one spot. Get this down for number two. Set up God first, nothing second. Set up God's first, nothing second. I was reading this uh, commentary that I really like about Daniel, and he just highlighted all the times it says Nebuchadnezzar set up this image, and he set up all the people there, and he set up all the music, and he just says, hey, this whole thing is a setup job. It's all, it's all, a, it's all a sham. It all just looks good on the outside, but there's no real God that you're worshiping. And then he highlights the fact that these three young men, these three Hebrews in a foreign land, these guys in their heart, they had already set up, they had already established that they would worship God and suffer no rivals. They would not have any idols in their heart, and they were willing to die on that hill. 
Life becomes very simple when you look at these commands here in the Ten Commandments. If you just made your life mission to put God first, how many other things would fall into place? We just talked about this at the men's retreat. We talked about the fear of God, and if we're really concerned about God's name and Him getting the glory and our heart really belonging to Him, that's going to drive us away from so many sins. That's going to drive us towards so many good works, but we're not even going to be thinking about staying away from sin or doing the right thing. We're going to be thinking about the worship of God as our number one priority and passion, and it's going to drive everything forward in our life. See, the commentary that I read, he said, you know, the real miracle is not that God rescued these guys out of the fire. The real miracle is there were three people in that whole massive crowd who were ready to die for the worship of God. Where are those people today? Who's ready to put the worship of God as more important than anything else in your entire life? More important than your family? More important than your business? more important than whatever it is your heart might desire in the things of this world. No, I'm going to put as the number one in my heart the worship of God and Him alone. We know this. What is the greatest commandment? We all know it. To love God with all our what? Okay, if you're going to love God with all of your heart, how much of your heart is left to love other things? See, it's all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is it trying to say? Everything I've got is going to God. I'm not letting anything creep in. He is first place. See, that's the real question. The real question is, if God is first place in your heart, if worshiping God is your number one priority, because if that's true, the next question that I'm about to ask you, are you ready to die because of your faith in God? That won't seem too crazy because you're already living like God is number one. And if you can't relate to the idea of, am I ready to die for my faith in God? Well, that begs the question up top, is God really your number one priority? Or is there something else that you give your heart to, that you idolize, that you put in that top spot? Maybe you're like, well, it's not really in the top spot. It's just competing for the top spot. That's what we're talking about. You shall set no other gods before me. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes here in 1 Peter 1 about a test of fire. You know, so let's start thinking this through. God is able to deliver these guys. God could have delivered these guys any way he wanted to. So why did God wait to deliver them? Why did the fourth man wait to show up when they were already into the fire? Why didn't God just deliver them before the fire? So you start to realize that maybe God wanted to put these three men who believed in him into a test of fire to prove not only to them, not only to him, but to everybody in Babylon, the genuineness of their faith. See, if we really believe in a God who's in heaven and does whatever he pleases, and a God who is sovereign and who is in control, Nebuchadnezzar isn't throwing these guys in the fire unless God is the one overseeing what's going on. 
See, here's how important it is to God that he's number one in your life. Here's how jealous God is for your worship, for your heart, is he will test you by fire to see if your faith is really genuine. Like, like he'll give you a promise that will blow your mind. He'll tell you that your descendants are going to be like the sand of the, of the seashore, like the stars in the sky. And then you'll be 100 years old and you'll be wondering, well, I don't even have one descendant. How am I going to have innumerable descendants? I don't even have one son. And then you have that son. And you name him Isaac. And you believe what a great God you have that he would keep the promise to you when you were 100 and your wife was 90 and here you are, you have the son of promise and then God tells you, arise and go kill your son. Because God doesn't want to give you a gift that you're going to love more than God. God doesn't want you to start worshiping the things that he's given you, the answers to your prayers, the promises that have come true. He always wants it to be about him. And it's not wrong for him to think that because he's God. No, it's in everybody's best interest in this room for us to worship God and suffer no rivals in our heart to give him all of the love that we have. That's in everybody's best interest. And that's what God deserves. That's what really belongs to him. And he'll take his man Abraham and he'll make him a promise and he'll keep that promise and he'll bless him with the son that he loves, his one and only son. And then he'll say, Abraham, who's more important to you, me or your son? And he's going to say that to every single one of us. He wants to know that he's number one and he's going to make you prove it. Look what it says here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There are all kinds of hard things coming in life. There are all kinds of tests. So that, here's the reason these trials come. Here's the reason some of us are going through hard times now, and some of us will be going through hard times later. This is the reason. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by, what does it say there? Tested by what? Fire. Tested by fire. God's going to want to see that your faith goes through the fire. He's going to want everybody here to prove to him that your commitment is him first and nothing second. So I'm encouraging you to consider your heart now. I'm encouraging you to ask God to reveal, hey, am I really all in for the worship of God? Can I really say here tonight with all of my heart that I am here to worship God and I will set nothing else in his place? I'd encourage you to make sure you can say that now because you will be tested later. And the tests might burn. You might come out really smelling like smoke. Some of these tests get downright intense. Because God cares, first and foremost, that you worship him. This is what is on his heart. And ultimately, look what that is going to lead to. It's going to lead to that may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, God sees the big picture. He sees what the real purpose of life is. He sees past the here and now. He lives in eternity. 
He understands where we're really going. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's why he takes you through a test of fire. I mean, you might think, wow, those... Those guys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, going into that fire, that was most probably the most intense, most brutal amount of suffering, like the scariest thing that they ever went through. You know what I think they said after it? That was the most glorious thing I've ever experienced. Who was there in the fire with me? See, they saw something in the fire that they could only believe by faith, but now they could see it by sight. They saw the glory of God. They saw him delivering them. They saw what their faith was really all about. It's this worship, this unending, unceasing praise that we will get to be in the presence of God and worship him. That's what we were made to do. That's what we can do now. That's what we ultimately will do for all of eternity. And where did they get the best glimpse of that in their entire lives? in the fire. What are they famous for that we're still talking about here before we go eat some meat and cheese on a Saturday night? Going into the fire, all right? So I want to encourage you, if you're going through the fire right now, or if it's still coming your way, to make sure that you pass that test, that you aren't worshiping something else besides the Lord. And there was a man who actually thought this way And he was, for a while, the man who was uh, the president of In-N-Out Burger, and his name was Rich Snyder. Anybody ever heard of Rich Snyder before? Uh, In-N-Out Burger was started by Harry and Esther Snyder, and eventually it was taken over by their son, Rich. And he's the one who really started the expansion and the growth of In-N-Out. And uh, Rich, he was an on-fire Christian. He really believed in the Lord. He really wanted to worship Jesus Christ. In fact, he was ready to worship Jesus Christ even if it cost him business, even if it cost him influence, even if it cost him friends. That's why Rich, because of his faith, started putting Bible verses on in and out products. In the early 90s, Rich Snyder, maybe some of you remember these, he started doing full-page newspaper ads and radio commercials that were presentations of the gospel of Jesus, and he did this all under the name of In-N-Out Burger. The In-N-Out jingle at one time during the Christmas season had the line, wouldn't you like salvation in your life? That's what it said. It was boycotted by radio stations. There was all kinds of negative feedback of people calling in and out, people not wanting to go to in and out. I mean, some people loved it. Some people, they hated it. And the news, they came after Rich, and they said, why are you doing this? Why are you doing these ads on the radio, taking up full pages in newspapers, putting Bible verses on the printed materials? Why are you doing all this? Shouldn't you stop? Isn't this bad for business? And Rich said, quote, It would be a real drag to die and be up in front of God and have to say, I refuse to run this type of commercial. This is something he told the Orange County Register. My love of Jesus is greater than my fear of what people will say. And shortly after he said that, 
Rich died. He died suddenly and tragically in an airplane as he was going up to visit his niece and his brother, his niece who now runs In-N-Out Burger. He was flying back into uh, John Wayne here in Orange County, and he got caught up in the tailwind of another plane, and his plane crashed, and he died in 1993, December 15th. And he stood before God, and he had nothing to be ashamed of because he worshiped God here on earth. That's why I'm a fan of In-N-Out Burger. And I want to encourage you, if you want your life to matter, if you want people to care about you long after you're dead and gone, you need to be a worshiper of a God who matters. Your value comes from finding yourself as a worshiper of him. And if you make life about something else, let me just tell you, that thing has no value. And I strongly encourage you to imitate the faith of three Jews in Babylon and say, but even if he does not, we'd rather die worshiping God than compromise with the world around us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you inspired by the faith of these guys and challenged in our hearts to see if we really worship you, if we've really set you up in the first place And we will set no other gods before you. We will not bow down to anything else. We will not bow down to our own children, to our own careers, to our own comforts. God, I pray that we would be able to say as your people, from hearts that are pure, from hearts that really worship, God, that we would be able to say that we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That you are first place, our number one priority, our singular passion. There is no compromise in our souls. And God, if if some of us are bowing down, if we're hearing the music and bowing down and fitting in and thinking long-term will influence the people around us by compromising now, God, I pray that you would convict us here tonight. That you would show us that we have one thing to do, one primary command, just to worship you with all of our hearts. And I pray that we will all die doing that, God no matter what it may cost us. If it costs us influence, if it costs us friends, if it costs us money, whatever it costs, we will have a higher value of worshiping you than anything else in this world. Give us that heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.